This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 11. Chapter 4. Browning in Italy. Part 1. The married pair went to Pisa in 1846, and moved soon afterward to Florence. Of the life of the Brownings in Italy there is much perhaps to be said in the way of description and analysis, little to be said in the way of actual narrative. Each of them had passed through the one incident of existence. Just as Elizabeth Barrett's life had, before her marriage, been uneventfully somber, now it was uneventfully happy. A succession of splendid landscapes, a succession of brilliant friends, a succession of high and ardent intellectual interests they experienced, but their life was of the kind that if it were told at all would need to be told in a hundred volumes of gorgeous intellectual gossip. How Browning and his wife rode far into the country eating strawberries and drinking milk out of the basins of the peasants, how they fell in with the strangest and most picturesque figures of Italian society how they climbed mountains and read books and modelled in clay and played on musical instruments, how Browning was made a kind of arbiter between two improvising Italian bards, how he had to escape from a festivity when the sound of Garibaldi's hymn brought the knocking of the Austrian police. These are the things of which his life is full, trifling and picturesque things, a series of interludes, a beautiful and happy story, beginning and ending nowhere. The only incidents, perhaps, were the birth of their son and the death of Browning's mother in 1849. It is well known that Browning loved Italy, that it was his adopted country, that he said in one of the finest of his lyrics that the name of it would be found written on his heart. But the particular character of this love of Browning for Italy needs to be understood. There are thousands of educated Europeans who love Italy, who live in it, who visit it annually, who come across a continent to see it, who hunt out its darkest picture and its most mouldering carving, but they are all united in this, that they regard Italy as a dead place. It is a branch, their universal museum, a department of dry bones. There are rich and cultivated persons, particularly Americans, who seem to think that they keep Italy, as they might keep an aviary or a hothouse, into which they might walk whenever they wanted a whiff of beauty. Browning did not feel at all in this manner. He was intrinsically incapable of offering such an insult to the soul of a nation. If he could not have loved Italy as a nation, he would not have consented to love it as an old curiosity shop. In everything on earth, from Middle Ages to the amoeba, who is discussed at such length in Mr. Sludge the Medium, he is interested in the life of things. He was interested in the life of Italian art and in the life in Italian politics. Perhaps the first and simplest example that can be given of this matter is in Browning's interest in art. He was immeasurably fascinated at all times by painting and sculpture, and his sojourn in Italy gave him, of course, innumerable and perfect opportunities for the study of painting and sculpture. But his interest in these studies was not like that of the ordinary cultured visitor to the Italian cities. 
Thousands of such visitors, for example, study those endless lines of magnificent pagan busts which are to be found in nearly all the Italian galleries and museums, and admire them, and talk about them, and note them in their catalogues, and describe them in their diaries. But the way in which they affected Browning is described very suggestively in a passage in the letters of his wife. She describes herself as longing for her husband to write poems, beseeching him to write poems, but finding all her petitions useless because her husband was engaged all day in modelling busts in clay and breaking them as fast as he made them. This is Browning's interest in art, the interest in a living thing, the interest in a growing thing, the insatiable interest in how things are done. Everyone who knows his admirable poems on painting, Fra Lippo Lippi and Andrea del Sarto and Pictor Ignotus, will remember how fully they deal with technicalities, how they are concerned with canvas, with oil, with a mess of colours. Sometimes they are so technical as to be mysterious to the casual reader. An extreme case may be found in that of Lady I once knew, who had merely read the title of Pascherato and how he worked in distemper, and thought that Pascherato was the name of a dog whom no attacks of canine disease could keep from the fulfilment of his duty. These Browning poems do not merely deal with painting. They smell of paint. They are the works of a man to whom art is not what it is to so many of the non-professional lovers of art, a thing accomplished, a valley of bones. To him it is a field of crops continually growing in a busy and exciting silence. Browning was interested, like some scientific man, in the obstetrics of art. There is a large army of educated men who can talk art with artists. But Browning could not merely talk art with artists, he could talk shop with them. Personally, he may not have known enough about painting to be more than a fifth-rate painter, or enough about the organ to be more than a sixth-rate organist. But there are, when all is said and done, some things which a fifth-rate painter knows, which a first-rate art critic does not know. There are some things which a sixth-rate organist knows, which a first-rate judge of music does not know. And these were the things that Browning knew. He was, in other words, what is called an amateur. The word amateur has come by the thousand oddities of language to convey an idea of tepidity, whereas the word itself has the meaning of passion. Nor is this peculiarity confined to the mere form of the word. The actual characteristic of these nameless dilante is a genuine fire and reality. A man must love a thing very much, if he not only practices it without any hope of fame or money, but even practices it without any hope of doing it well. Such a man must love the toils of the work more than any other man can love the rewards of it. Browning was in this strict sense a strenuous amateur. He tried and practiced in the course of his life half a hundred things at which he can never have even for a moment expected to succeed. The story of his life is full of absurd little ingenuities, such as the discovery of a way of making pictures by roasting brown paper over a candle. In precisely the same spirit of fruitless vivacity, he made himself, to a very considerable extent, a technical expert in painting, a technical expert in sculpture, a technical expert in music. In his old age he shows traces of being so bizarre a thing 
as an abstract police detective writing at length in letters and diaries his views of certain criminal cases in an italian town indeed his own ring and the book is merely a sublime detective story he was in a hundred things this type of man he was precisely in the position with a touch of a greater technical success of the admirable figure in stevenson's story who said i can play the fiddle nearly well enough to earn a living in an orchestra of a penny gaff but not quite the love of browning for italian art therefore was anything but an antiquarian fancy it was the love of a living thing we see the same phenomena in an even more important manner the essence and individuality of the country itself italy to browning and his wife was not by any means merely that sculptured and ornate sepulchre that it is to so many of those cultivated english men and women who live in italy and enjoy and admire and despise it to them it was a living nation the heart and centre of the religion and politics of a continent the ancient and flaming heart of western history the very europe of europe and they lived at the time of the most moving and gigantic of all dramas the making of a new nation one of the things that makes men feel that they are still in the morning of the earth before their eyes with every circumstances of energy and mystery was passing the panorama of the unification of italy with the bold and romantic militarism of garibaldi the more bold and more romantic diplomacy of cavour they lived in a time when affairs of state had almost the air of works of art and it is not strange that these two poets should have become politicians in one of those great creative epics when even the politicians have to be poets browning was on this question and on all the questions of continental and english politics a very strong liberal this fact is not a mere detail of purely biographical interest like any view he might take of the authorship of the echion basilic or the authenticity of the tick-born claimant liberalism was so inevitably involved in the poet's whole view of existence that even a thoughtful and imaginative conservative would feel that browning was bound to be a liberal his mind was possessed perhaps even to excess by a belief in growth and energy and in the ultimate utility of error he held the great central liberal doctrine a belief in a certain destiny of the human spirit beyond and perhaps even independent of our own sincerest convictions the world was going right he felt most probably in his way but certainly in its own way the sonnet which he wrote in later years entitled why i am a liberal expresses admirably this philosophical root of his politics it asks in effect how he who had found truth in so many strange forms after so many strange wanderings can be expected to stifle with horror the eccentricities of others a liberal may be defined approximately as a man who if he could by waving his hand in a dark room stop the mouths of all the deceivers of mankind forever would not wave his hand browning was a liberal in this sense and just as the great liberal movement which followed the french revolution made this claim for the liberty and personality of human beings so it made it for the liberty and personality of nations it attached indeed to the independence of a nation something of the same holy transcendental sanctity which humanity has in all legal systems 
attached to the life of a man. The grounds were indeed much the same. No one could say absolutely that a live man was useless, and no one could say absolutely that a variety of national life was useless, or must remain useless to the world. Men remembered how often barbarous tribes or strange and alien scriptures had been called in to revive the blood of decaying empires and civilizations. And this sense of the personality of a nation, as distinct from the personalities of all other nations, did not involve, in the case of these old liberals, international bitterness. For it is too often forgotten that friendship demands independence and equality fully as much as war. But in them it led to great international partialities, to a great system, as it were, of adopted countries, which made so thorough a Scotchman as Carlyle in love with Germany, and so thorough an Englishman as Browning in love with Italy. And while, on the one side of the struggle, this was the great ideal of energy and variety, on the other side was something which we now find it difficult to realize or describe. We have seen in our own time a great reaction in favor of monarchy, aristocracy, and ecclesiasticism, a reaction almost entirely noble in its instinct and dwelling almost entirely on the best periods and the best qualities of the old regime. But the modern man, full of admiration for the great virtue of chivalry, which is at the heart of aristocracies, and the great virtue of reverence, which is at the heart of ceremonial religion, is not in a position to form any idea of how profoundly unchivalrous, how astonishingly irreverent, how utterly mean and material and devoid of mystery or sentiment were the despotic systems of Europe which survived, and for a time conquered the revolution. The case against church in Italy in the time of Pio Nono was not the case which a rationalist would urge against the church of the time of St. Louis, but diametrically the opposite case. Against the medieval church it might be said that she was too fantastic, too visionary, too dogmatic about the destiny of man, too indifferent to all things but the devotional side of the soul. Against the church of Pio Nono, the main thing to be said was that it was simply and supremely cynical, that it was not founded on the unworldly instinct for distorting life, but on the worldly counsel to leave life as it is, that it was not the inspirer of insane hopes of reward and miracle, but the enemy, the cool and skeptical enemy of hope of any kind or description. The same was true of the monarchical systems of Prussia and Austria and Russia at this time. Their philosophy was not the philosophy of the cavaliers who rode after Charles I or Louis Thirteenth. It was the philosophy of the typical city uncle, advising everyone, and especially the young, to avoid enthusiasm, to avoid beauty, to regard life as a machine dependent only upon the two forces of comfort and fear. That was, there can be little doubt, the real reason of the fascination of the Napoleon legend, that while Napoleon was a despot like the rest, he was a despot who went somewhere and did something and defied the pessimism of Europe and erased the word impossible. One does not need to be a Bonapartist to rejoice at the way in which the armies of the First Empire, shouting their songs and jesting with their colonels, smote and broke into pieces the armies of Prussia and Austria driven into battle with a cane.
the end of section eleven